0: Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at Vimo Education. Vimo works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? Vimo has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how Vimo partners with and designs ISAs for world class higher education institutions. And now, on to Education Trends. As the Secretary of Higher Education in New Jersey, Zakia Smith-Ellis has one of the most important jobs you can get in the higher education space. She works at the state level to make sure that the people of New Jersey have access to education and opportunities to use what they learn to become well-rounded citizens. Prior to working at the state level, the secretary worked for an educational foundation as well as the federal government for both the George W. Bush administration and in the Obama White House. Throughout her career, she has worked to make college more affordable and the process of applying to college and for student loans more transparent. But there's more work to do. She discusses all of that on this episode. So again, welcome to Ed Trends. Why don't you just introduce yourself, if you would? Tell us your name, your position, and a little bit about what you do as secretary.
1: Sure. So I am Zakia Smith-Ellis. I'm the Secretary of Higher Education for the state of New Jersey. And in that capacity, I advise the governor on higher education policy issues and coordinate higher education activities for the state more broadly. Right now, that includes thinking about our path forward on tuition-free community college, thinking about apprenticeships, and developing a state plan for higher education, which is exciting.
0: Tell me a little bit about your day-to-day and what kind of tasks you do on a day-to-day basis.
1: That is a good question. As you can probably imagine, it varies. One thing that always is always kind of churning is that we run a variety of different programs for the state. The Educational Opportunity Fund, which helps students progress through college, low-income students in particular get student supports for college. So we are the are the statewide office for that is here in our office. There's a statewide gear up program that is, oh gosh, gaining early awareness something up. (laughs) It's a federal program that does college access that I actually used to work for, not in New Jersey, but in Massachusetts, um, probably 10 or 11 years ago now, doing college access for high school students. So those things have directors that run, but just kind of keeping up with those. So meetings, lots of meetings. Also, though, there's a fair amount of going out to different college campuses, meeting students, talking with administrators, taking campus tours, especially as we develop a state plan, just wanting to get out there and talk to people about what they see the important issues facing higher education in the state as being. And then just planning. I spend a fair amount of time with other colleagues within the administration across state government, thinking about data that we need, thinking about the best way to just move forward on a number of issues. So just meetings, 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 uh, meetings with Mm -hmm. my colleagues internally, meetings with my colleagues at the Department of Labor, at the Department of Education, in the governor's office, and then a fair amount of those kinds of meetings with external stakeholder groups. So whether it's groups like Choose New Jersey, which is a group of kind of industry and Actually, some higher education leaders, whether someone like the Chamber of Commerce or the American Federation of Teachers, which has higher education affiliates, those kinds of groups that may have interest with the state, I spend time meeting with them as well.
0: Tell me a little bit about just the role government plays in education in general, how the government historically has played a role in government, and how in the recent past, what role you've played as a government employee in higher education.
1: Yeah, well, most students actually go to public colleges, so I think the averages around 80% of students are actually attending public colleges and universities, whether they're in community colleges or comprehensive universities or flagship institutions or regional college. They're, they're mostly not in the Ivy League or, or even in private colleges, right? So to that extent, government, whether it's state government or, or local government, has a large role in funding <laughs> higher education. The underlying funding often will come from the state. Sometimes at community colleges, it'll come from the county or the locality or the municipality. And so often with funding comes, you know, other kinds of requirements. Reporting, <laughs> reporting, reporting, reporting. reporting. <laughs> or whether it's outcomes and wanting to know what we're getting for the money. So the state is involved in that kind of way that is about, you know, spending money and figuring out what it gets for its money. In some places, not necessarily in New Jersey, but other places, higher education is more kind of centrally, I should say centrally governed. So we're a state that has a lot of autonomy for our colleges. So in my role, I'm not like, hiring and firing the college presidents and telling them what to spend money on and you know, approving their, you know, purchases of pins or whatever. But in other places, it's kind of like where there's one person who's maybe the Chancellor of higher education and all the presidents have to kind of do what they oversimplifying, of course, but have to more or less do what they say. In which case, I think you could think of government as being much more involved. So there are a variety of different models and ways, and that's just at the state, the state and local level. The federal government plays a big role in education, also mostly with the funding for student financial aid. So providing funding through student grants and also through student loans, which is another big topic that I worked on prior to coming to New Jersey.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your prior roles before you were secretary in New Jersey. You you worked at a foundation and you worked for the Obama administration as a senior advisor for education at the White House Domestic Policy Council. So tell me a little bit about those roles and why you wanted to get into the education space
1: in general and why you took the path that you did. I didn't start my first job in government wasn't actually in the Obama administration. I, when I started in federal government, it was 2007. Um, Margaret Spellings was the secretary of education. And I had always been interested in education. I wanted to be a teacher. I got my student teaching license from my undergraduate college, Vanderbilt University, and kind of thought about teaching right away, really enjoyed it. I love that kind of like look on student spaces when you can connect the dots for them and share with them new concepts. But I ended up doing an internship, actually, in Washington, D.C., and just loved it. I worked on Capitol Hill for my hometown congresswoman and just had a fantastic time. I loved the city. I loved the vibrancy, the kind of role of young people in D.C., which I kind of joke now maybe part of the reason why things don't turn out the way that we think they should is because it's run by 25-year-olds. But at the time when I was like 22, I thought that was like the most exciting thing ever. This is great. Amazing. Exactly. And I was like, man, if those people can do it, I can certainly do it. So I thought, you know, working in policy, you have an ability to impact so many more people than you can just being in, in the classroom. And there's a huge role for individual teachers, but I felt like, man, there's a a chance here to have an impact on, you know, millions of students, if you can kind of get it. But the trade-off I've found is that whereas every day at the end of your, you know, teaching career, you're kind of talking to students every day and you're maybe even if you have a frustrating day, you you reached one student in a new way, whereas you can go years and years in policy and not get anything done. And so it's really kind of, you know, you spend several years working on something and then you get an accomplishment that, that impacts. tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And then you go for several years and nothing happens. And so it's kind of that trade off between an individual that daily potentially gratification of seeing the difference that you're making and the impact of kind of touching more and more people, but not really getting to see that happen as frequently. Sorry, that was a long way of saying I did. I had this interest in being in the classroom, ended up actually in this kind of like random policy and advising outlet in the Department of Education, kind of of It was like a, we had Department of Education IDs and email addresses, but we really mostly interacted with Congress and providing advice about student financial aid and affordability. And then kind of randomly got a call to work for a person that was coming into the Obama administration as his like assistant and i took it because i thought president obama was amazing and i wanted to be associated with him in whatever way i could so if this guy needed an assistant even if i had a master's degree and was you know on my way to a corner office i was willing to you know schedule his meetings and do his travel arrangements because i just felt like this was an exciting time to be involved with a really transformational leader from there you know went from scheduling meetings i obviously had a lot of background in the policy area of higher education and affordability. And so ended up getting to do some other things and they were short on staff at the time. So that was a great opportunity. If you're willing to do all the things that you need to do during the first part of the day, you can also say, well, do you need extra help on this? Or do you need somebody to write a memo on that? And so that's what I did. And then from there, worked in another office that did policy and budget planning, then went to the White House, which was extraordinarily exciting because you get to be next to all these people that are you know, really high profile. And then after four years, that was extraordinarily exhausting. And I got tired and I went to work at a foundation and found that there's a lot of things that you could do outside of government as well.
0: So tell me a little bit about the policies that you thought needed to be enacted, the changes you thought should be made and how you went about doing that in in all your roles, in your role at the White House, in your role at the foundation, in your role now. What what are kind of some of the biggest Ways that you've been able to have an impact, and how are you still
1: trying to have an impact? When I was at the White House, you you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how people paid for college and how, what the role of the federal government was in that. And actually, if you just think about it, the federal government spends a lot of money on Pell grants, which are are student financial aid to low-income students, and then. There's arguments of how much money they spend versus take in on student loans, but suffice it to say that they provide a great deal of funding in the form of student loans. And we had just gone through these really terrible budget battles where the Congress and the President, President Obama, and the Republican-held Congress were at a standstill and like the government almost shut down a couple of times because they couldn't agree on a budget. But in the end, they, they managed to increase funding for student financial aid in terms of aggregate over, overall amounts. But when you look at what impact that had because if you increase like everybody's grant by $50 or $100 and that grant goes to millions of people, it costs a lot a lot of money. For the student, unfortunately, all they see, I mean, $100 is a lot of money to some, you know, people, but when you if your tuition goes up by $200, you're still net negative. <laughs> and so you realize you just spent I mean, I think we spent another $20 billion. And for many students, it wasn't like a transformational change. And so it's like, well, how do you go about changing this? Like, what could you do differently? And so we spent, and and I think President Obama was personally frustrated. It's like, I spent a lot of political capital in an environment where they want to cut funding and shut down the government over funding. I spent $20 billion, and it, it doesn't mean that, like, everybody's college is, like, more affordable in a way that is very clear to people about what that looks like so to me that meant okay well that means uncovering well what is the problem okay if the problem is that tuition goes up more than financial aid what could you do about that and we also realized that part of the reason that tuition goes up is because states have been reducing their funding per student and so then the colleges end up increasing tuition So for many years, we've kind of had this idea, and I say we, I mean, me and a lot of other people in the Obama administration about how how you could work with states to have some kind of consistent funding to colleges in a way that led to actually reduced prices to students. And I should say better quality as well, like making sure that they're helping students complete and not just leaving them out to dry. But that kind of state-based funding was something that we really tried at. We didn't succeed in getting these big that kind of big change. But it's something that when I moved to Lumina Foundation, this idea of a partnership between the federal government and states is something that I continue to work on there. And now I'm at a state where we're developing a new plan for higher education and where we're actively thinking about the ways that we fund colleges and and how to do that in a better better way at the state level. So now I'm kind of in the belly of the beast and some of the things that we talked about More broadly, in terms of making college more affordable, which is definitely connected to making it more likely that people will complete and making sure that the jobs that they get afterwards are meaningful and that they're able to pay back any loans that they get. It's kind of all tied in together. But now I'm in a place where we can think about what that looks like in a real in a real way from a state funding perspective
0: what does it look like what what are yeah. the steps you're taking
1: we were just meeting about that do you have the solution and we can kind of wrap this thing up and put it out on a boat let's just put it out there yeah. i mean i don't know what we're waiting for yeah i think it's um i think it you know seriously that is what i spend a lot of time talking to people about to think through and and at the state level you realize you've got to figure out what is the best way to get that money to the individual institutions. So at the federal level you're like, okay, well we want the state to spend more and at the state level you're kind of thinking with all the different priorities that we have to fund everything from medicare to you know prisons to K12 education, how do you you know allocate the right amount of money to higher education and then how do you ensure that the colleges are spending it wisely? and how do you allocate it in a fair way across all of the colleges? So right now, I think one of the things that we're looking at is what is the best way to allocate whatever funding we do find available to each of the different colleges and universities. We actually have a hearing coming up on Monday. I'm going to testify, and some other experts are going to testify about that very topic. And there's some, some new ideas about giving colleges money based on different metrics that they meet. So do you give money based on per student? Like you get Five dollars ahead. I'm just using fictional numbers here to not get myself in trouble, but like, you know, or do you say you get more money for closing, you know, achievement gaps in low income students and higher income students and making sure that they both graduate on time at the same rates? Or do you, you know, there's a bunch of different approaches that other states are t- starting to take. And there are some people that have done research on that. And one thing that I really love to do is learn from other people and learn what has worked well and what hasn't. So we're inviting some experts who have looked at that and to talk about for us to examine in New Jersey what has worked well and what hasn't worked well. So that as we think about what could be our future in that space of funding institutions, that we're doing it with that information in mind.
0: I was looking at some stats last night when I was doing some research and according to last year, New Jersey, last year stats, New Jersey had like an 89% high school graduation rate which was higher than the national average, and 37% of the population had at least a bachelor's degree, which is also higher than the national average. Do those numbers sound right to you? And and what do those numbers mean? What are the numbers that you look at? What stats are most important to you when you're kind of making decisions?
1: um, You've got uh, great stats. I'm going to put you on a research team. (laughs) (laughs) No, those are the kinds of things that we do look at. And what You find in New Jersey is, we have a really, really strong K-12 education system. So people move to New Jersey for the schools. I mean, we spend a lot on schools, but people are very proud of their, the K-12 school system here. Having said that, there are still a lot of disparities in that. So we have very high overall rates for some of these things, usually higher than the national average. It's a very highly educated state, but then those average rates kind of mask just gaps in outcomes by ethnicity and then also by income. And I would also say by region, which are correlated with race, ethnicity, and and income. So when I see the college graduation rate for our four-year public colleges is close to 70%, which is very good compared to other colleges nationwide. Although I would say that most people are probably surprised that the college graduation rate is not closer to 100%. I mean, people, especially when you take out loans and stuff, nobody expects them not to right. finish. Right. You would, you would want to finish. Exactly. No. We wring our hands at the high school. I mean, I think if we had a high school graduation rate that was 70%, people would say that was bad. And so if we say, oh, no, the college graduation rate where the colleges are actually choosing who attends <laughs> right. 70%. And you're paying huge amounts of money for it. And they're paying for it, it right? <laughs> Whereas high school is free, then that's really good. There's something wrong there. So I think we need to kind of in general, across society, not just in New Jersey, but kind of reframe what we think of as as excellent when it comes to college outcomes. But in any case, 70% is much higher than the average nationally. But having said that, when you look underneath it, you see that for Hispanic students in the state, which is a growing population, the college graduation rate for four-year institutions in the state is around 60%. And then for African-American students, it's around 50%. And again, the black college graduation rate nationally is much lower than 50 percent. But I would say that half of people starting and not finishing is no bueno. (laughs) It's like not something that that is not what we want in any way, shape or form. So I I look at those kinds of numbers and say, what could we be doing to close those gaps and to increase the bar for everybody, but also close the gaps? How do
0: you work with your colleagues with other agencies and with universities in general to close those gaps, how do you see higher education changing to adapt to the needs of of all students, not just the people who can afford it, but like you're saying, the low income students, the Hispanic students, all the different range of students that aren't necessarily getting the same education that everybody else is getting or or the same access, I should say.
1: Yeah, I think coming back to steps that we can take to address affordability issues is is huge. It's not the only thing, but when you talk to actual students, the reasons they give for not finishing usually tie back to lack of resources. And I think even the reasons that they give that are not directly financially related are due to lack of resources oftentimes. So for as an example, like it may not be, okay, well I couldn't pay my term bill so I dropped out. But a lot of times it's like, well, I have a kid and, you know, a quarter of college students actually have children of their own, you know, so it's like, well, I have a kid and I couldn't find daycare, so I couldn't finish. And it's like, that is an affordability problem. Like if you could afford childcare, you would have been able to, you know, come to class or I couldn't afford not to work, right? So like my work schedule and the school schedule didn't mix. And so it's like, well, if you didn't have to work so much, then you could have come to class and that's an affordability problem. Even sometimes I think academic things which are like, okay, well, I'm going to class, but I'm also working at night. So I'm only sleeping three hours a day and I have no time to do my homework. So that shows up as a, that kid just doesn't get it and like failed out of class. But it's really, if you had time, if you didn't have to work so much and you had somebody else paying your bill, you wouldn't be in this situation. You would have had time to commit to your studies. And that's an affordability issue. So to me, a lot of the challenge goes back to the amount of pressure that we are putting on students today to fund their own education, which is, Students today pay more for college than in past generations, hands down. The tuition has gone up. And even though we have more financial aid than we used to, the net amount that they are spending and borrowing for college is more than any other generation has ever faced. And I think that has real psychological impacts on people and how they view their education. But also, it just is, it puts pressure on you. There's a lot of research about just the psychology of taking on debt and the psychology of scarcity and what you, you know, again, feeling like you need to work so much because you don't want to have to take out another dime or being anxious and rather than being free in your studies has a lot to do with actually how well you do and what you decide to major in or what you decide to pursue. Whether you feel like you can take an unpaid internship, which we should have less of, we should have more paid internships. But anyway, like it it has an impact on all of those things which relate to your quality of your learning experience. So I think you asked about solutions though. So when I think about what we could be doing, I'm going to go to one of the main priorities of this governor and something that I think is sweeping the nation which is free community college and eliminating the barrier of tuition and fees at least at community colleges where they're supposed to be open access where if you have a high school diploma you're supposed to be able to go you know to a community college there should be one in every community that's the general idea that they're more accessible you don't necessarily have to live away from home. You don't have to go somewhere, you you know, other than like driving there. It's not like you pack up all of your things and move, which not everybody has the luxury to be able to do. And making that tuition free so that people don't have to worry about funding the tuition part of that. Now, we still have a ways to go in terms of thinking about books and supplies. And I think there's some interesting things happening there with actually open educational resources, which are like textbooks that are online that are free. So, you know, Those are all things making, you know, in short, making community college tuition free, making books more accessible and free, and then helping people like having childcare services on campuses, having food pantries on campuses, doing a better job with just our social safety net more broadly. All of those are things that we could be doing to make it more likely that students of all backgrounds would succeed in college. And those are things that we're trying to do here and, you know, already moving forward on and are going to try to keep incorporating that as part of our plan.
0: You have obviously had success throughout your career. You're still working to to do more. Tell me what has been one of your, your biggest successes or one of the most important lessons that you've
1: learned along the way. Hmm. I would say biggest success and most important lesson are two different things because the lessons come All from right. the So Se- separate them. <laughs> so something I'm really proud of that is not just me, but it was a team of people, but I was part of it and I'm excited I was, you know, think it's a positive step forward is really on transparency of information about college. I think the idea that you could take out, be asked to take out a loan for college and not really know what your payment on that loan is likely to be is almost criminal. If we did that in any other consumer finance industry, it would be illegal. Like you don't give people loans and not tell them how much the right. payment amount is. <laughs> but we routinely do that for college. That's just that you, you take out an amount and no one tells you, I mean there's it's not in the same form, right? It's it's in a different format. You you are presented with the cost of college and your options for paying for it, usually including some types of grants and some types of loans. And that is in the financial aid letter that you either I used to be that you get it in the mail, more often it comes online. And that financial aid letter has, you know, amounts for loans. And then sometime later, you have to do a loan counseling session that's disconnected from the point at which you made the decision to attend the college. And when you get that financial aid information, that's actually after you've already decided to apply. So if you thought the college was too expensive, not knowing that maybe there was financing available, you already kind of ruled it out and you never applied. So just the whole process of how we do this is not really transparent to people. It's intimidating. And especially if you're like the first person in your family or your kind of community to have gone to college, it's even more so intimidating. And one of the things that we did as part in the Obama administration was really an effort to make that process more transparent. And we created something called the financial aid shopping sheet, which would have that information about kind of loan repayment in the the financial aid award letter, along with your likelihood of repaying the loan, the default rate at the college, and some other kind of key information in that one place. And then also something called the college scorecard, which was an effort to provide more transparent information about college outcomes, like the graduation rates of different colleges and like what people from those colleges end up making afterwards. I think that actually came from, we started talking about these concepts with college presidents he said well it's not fair to scare people about the loans without telling them how much you know they're likely to make and they're likely to make a million dollars more and it's like okay yes that's an average people don't live their lives on average so let's give them you know for your college what do people make so that when they're looking at what it costs for your college and what they're going to borrow for your college what the average incomes of people who graduate and I can tell you that they were decidedly less excited about that (laughs) when it became real and personal, Um, but that was something that we did, and it's not a perfect effort. Definitely, you know, the way you collect the data and the way you represent it is something that needs to be looked at over time for, you know, making sure that the data is accurate and an iterative process just in terms of user testing, and I think it's actually one of the things that the current administration, I think, has kept, which is a good sign, of just how popular the concept of transparency in college information can be. And it's not the end-all be-all, like you still need to do the other things, like actually funding it and making it more affordable. But it's one kind of small thing that I'm really proud of that we did that I think makes a difference and it sets us on the right path. Like, okay, so we did that and people have critiques about the way we collected the data. We'll make the data better. That's fine. You have a critique about, you know, the way it's displayed. That's fine. Like display it even more, you know, clearly, the next time. and and that was I can also turn that into a lesson, which is it was a bold thing, even though I think there's was- more bold things that you could do. To me, it's pretty common sense that you would provide people with information about those <laughs> kinds of basic statistics.
0: You, uh, would, think. It, you <laughs> would
1: think. You uh, would think, but it was like, oh my goodness, this college scorecard. I can't believe this. How dare you show <laughs> people the information? Oh, uh, It's like, oh my God, even bolder would be to say you wouldn't get money if you didn't need certain metrics. That would be really bold. <laughs> but it was also a lesson in just how entrenched the status quo is. And people really, really, whenever you put out a very specific idea, it mean, it opens yourself up to critique. So you put out the scorecard, it's like, oh, you know, you used three years out of college, you really should be using five years out of college. You use five years out of college, don't you know that people don't really hit their stride until it's 10 years out of college? And it's like, okay, well, before we were showing people nothing. So, so it's like... <laughs> baby steps. <laughs> is, they're baby steps, and this is an improvement. But I don't get discouraged by it, but you realize just how much inertia there is in the system because it's like the current system is bad because people don't know anything and they're taking out debt and they say after they graduate that they had no idea that this was what the repayment was going to be. So that system is not ideal. Whatever we replace it with, you know, there there are critiques and ways that those things are not ideal. But the question isn't like what are the unintended consequences and how do we reduce them to zero? The question is, is the thing that we're replacing it with better by some measure than what we had before? And, you know, progress is just each time you get an opportunity, you try to make it a little better and a little better. So I think there's a lesson somewhere in there about not being (laughs) discouraged at critiques that you might find yourself in front of.
0: Definitely. How do you feel about a quick lightning round to end the interview? Sure. All right. So quick just quick rapid fire questions what's the what's one of your favorite books you read in the last year
1: i just finished oh my god i just finished a book i so rarely finish books it's the book that just became a movie crazy rich asian's oh yes crazy rich asian's yes crazy rich asian's yes, that's what i i just <laughs> I finished was the reading book that and too. i did I the movie because it. i really wanted to finish the book and i just finished it and it was really good
0: was it okay i'll have to get back to it what about podcasts do you listen to podcasts yes
1: i do What's your favorite podcast? Oh, my favorite one. It's like, yes, that was easy. Yes, I listen to podcasts. Um, <laughs> um, I like Oprah and I like the Super Soul podcast. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Solid choices. How about music? Do you have a go-to playlist or album oh, or artist that you like to listen to? Beyonce. Beyonce? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <Nice>. Yes. <laughs> what about your favorite snack or guilty pleasure? Potato
1: chips. Solid. I ate like half favorite a bag yesterday hol- on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> what about favorite holiday? Oh, absolutely Christmas. I love Christmas. I just, you know, do everything Christmas. I, I love it. Nice. Halloween's coming up.
0: Do you have a costume? And what's your favorite Halloween candy? Oh, I don't really do candy at all.
1: I am like that lady that would probably give out apples. and <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And um I don't do costumes at all. Like probably Halloween is like my least I'm probably like boo boo. I, it's like my least favorite um you are holiday. The, you're the
0: the the Grinch of Halloween. I know.
1: I'm trying to figure <laughs> out like how to get people like not maybe if I put out apples, they will not come to my house. <laughs> yeah. Uh okay. What is what inspires you? Other people, you know, when You see other Mm -hmm. people doing good in the world and positivity in other people that's inspirational to keep going.
0: And last question, if you, I mean, we all do this. We, we, education's important to us. Why do you do this and what's one piece of advice you would want to leave the audience listening who, for whom I assume education is important?
1: Well, I do this because I think education is powerful. And I think if you truly educate people, you're giving them the opportunity to take ownership of their own life in ways that are both material in terms of increased earning power. That's one thing. But just having a sense of meaning about the world, it's kind of the believe in some of the philosophers that kind of the idea of self-actualization and stuff is just a powerful tool. So learning how to learn, I think, can be transformative for people no matter what. And I think there are so many people in society who we've kind of counted out and, as a society, not really provided opportunities to and giving people the kind of ability to make sense of the world, whether it's like in about their economic potential, but also just about their political potential and organizing and thinking. That's why I do this. And if everybody actually had a really equal access to education, I would be a happy person and retire. And (laughs) and so maybe that'll happen like within the next few years and I can just be awesome where And then
0: we'll go to the beach and not celebrate Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you
1: for this opportunity. Great talking to you.